Stories of Communism 22, Dreaming of Green Peas Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we review and discuss the first-hand testimony of those who lived through the horrors of communism over the last century. This is Eric Seligman, your co-host, along with Manuel Castaneda, recording from the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. Today we're interviewing another great guest, Zilvina Salinas. As you'll hear in the interview, Zilvina spent his childhood in communist Lithuania, but eventually grew up to become president of the Foundation for Economic Education, a well-known free market-supporting think tank. Let's listen to Zilvina's talk about his experiences as a child and how they led him to become such an ardent critic of socialist and communist systems today. Yeah, so so I guess, um, you know, for, first thing, um, just wanted to... Um, uh, thank you for uh, speaking to us. And maybe Z, you could start by um, just talking about um, where you were born and uh, when you were born and, and how you grew up. Uh, I was born in 1981 in a Soviet Socialist Republic of Lithuania, which was well Lithuania occupied by Soviet Union. Uh, so we experienced about say eight, nine, or eight to ten years of uh, real. Uh, communism or real socialism or as real as it gets on in this on this earth uh so this was my childhood back and then in the 90s lithuania became uh, independent so i lived through that transitionary period i'm really happy to say that lithuania is a full market country by now and currently i'm living in u.s wow so um i guess uh so it's an interesting journey you had you know from communist lithuania to being president of a uh, free enterprise uh, think tank can you say more about how that came about well, it just so happens I was running a free enterprise think tank, think tank back in Lithuania. I worked for it for 13 years since 2006. Uh, so I was always, I've always been a sort of a passionate defender of liberty. Um, so I just see this thing as a, my, my position right here in the United States, just as a continuation of that work. Uh, I care about liberty deeply. I dislike socialism and communism with a passion. And I think I'm going to continue to do that uh, till the end of my time. Boy, uh, this is very interesting. So what were you doing there uh, for work? Where? Where you When you lived in Lithuania? Oh, not, I was, a, for some time I was a teacher. Uh, that was after my graduation. I studied the U.S., by the way. I graduated from Western University in Connecticut. So I came back home, uh, was a teacher in my old school for a year or so. Uh, then I worked for a think tank. Then I was a city councilman in charge of my city's budget. Then I was an advisor for a nuclear power plant. And uh, then I was a think tanker. So then I was a think tanker working for a free enterprise think tank. Uh, we did uh, mainly policy, but we also did some education. So what we did, we would track policies, we would inform people of what politicians are deciding, uh, we would fight for lower taxes, we would fight for more choice in, uh, sort of in the services that people get, That's sort of a, more or less the same work that many of the think tanks do here in the United States. Wow. How did that go? Were you successful? In oh, very. Very successful. Uh, the Lithuanian Free Market Institute uh, was established in 1990s. Oh, in 1990, uh, was a author of many of the mar free market reforms in Lithuania. Uh, we were, we were, we are, and still are quite famous to an extent that uh, I think in 2018, I was the most quoted opinion leader back in Lithuania. 
and uh, even uh, leftist rock bands that create songs <laughs> about us. And uh, sort of the course of the hook goes something like Lithuanian Free Market Institute wants to feed the poor to the wolves. So yes, we were quite prominent. So, so um, it's interesting that you know you come from this background where you had your early education under communism, but yet uh, they must have done a poor job educating you because in the end you're such a passionate free marketer. Uh, what kind of things happened during your childhood that made you uh, take a more skeptical view of of communism? Well, you see, already in the eighties and the nineties, uh, no one in so no one in Soviet Union actually believed that socialism works. If you wanted sort of the best caricature of socialism, I would say that's Soviet Union of the 80s and the 90s. So in fact, everyone was very deeply skeptical of the system, but the system was still going on, well, pr primarily because there was a Red Army in our country. So in, even growing up, I was already very skeptical about socialism because my, my parents were very skeptical and everyone in Lithuania was already skeptical. It was a sort of the everyday life was kind of a caricature of, uh, of what socialism is. Uh, so, for instance, where we weren't starving or anything like that, but there were always sort of constant shortages of certain products. For instance, for some weird reason, there was a shortage of mayonnaise in Soviet Union. Like mayonnaise was a, a luxury good. Uh, canned green peas was another sort of luxury good, which you couldn't get for some reason. So let's say if you were a, a member of a trade union once uh, once per year for, for holidays, for socialist holidays, uh, you would get a packet which would have a one can of mayonnaise, one can of green peas, some bad Indian instant coffee, and a bottle of cooking oil. And that was considered luxury. So that was sort of the, that was the life of uh, a citizen in Soviet Union. Uh, second thing, sort of, uh, if you wanted to uh, purchase a TV, for instance, or any sort of larger appliance, you would have to either wait in line for a couple of years, or once again, in your workplace, there would be a raffle. You know, it would be a raffle. Who gets the right to purchase a TV? And if, you, if you're lucky and your ticket gets pulled, you then can purchase a TV. But even then, that TV is expensive. Uh, we just, I remember some things and I just sort of double-checked with economical historians. So the price of a color TV was equivalent of about half of your year's wages. So basically work six months to buy a color TV if you're lucky enough to win an Apple. And then you could use it to watch communist propaganda. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's, what I, that's why I was laughing and thinking of the In color. Thing. In color. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I can, another I, sort of... I, I, another... <laughs> I can imagine the kind of shows you had to watch. <laughs> oh, yeah. So some many shows were... I mean, the communists were sad about their propaganda. Uh, so they would, you would, we would have youth magazines who would uh, once again talk about youth things, but in the same time uh, sort of put their socialist message or communist message in there. Uh, so, for instance, I think the, the youth magazine was called Little Star. Well, like, you know, obviously it's a star. And they would, they would have these, uh, did you know, kind of sections and in the in the did you know section that people well, did you know that the capitalists are supporting contras in nicaragua and killing and killing hundreds of people so things like that or like did you know that uh 
people there are people starving in the United States and homeless people in the United States, not like in Soviet Union. So everything that was did uh, or the, everything that was written or even sung or shown had communist undertones. Imagine if you were an artist, a director who is, who is making a play. In fact, your script would have to be vetted uh, by the Communist Party censors who would, who would try to make sure that you, know, you are not having a, a uncommunist message in it. Hmm. I'm also watching some of the, uh, the uh, channels here now in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's, that, that's the weird thing. I think that's what people from the Eastern Bloc cannot understand or actually think self-censorship is actually quite quite horrible. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. So, so you mentioned you went to Wesleyan University, was it, in the early 2000s? Um, yes. Yeah, so um, did you find yourself having to argue with a lot of uh, hardcore student communists while you were there? Oh, absolutely. But after a while, I just gave up. I remember my freshman year, uh, I mean, I've never seen so many Che Guevara shirts anywhere in my life. <laughs> Yeah, that's I've something never we've harped on so on this many. podcast quite a bit. <laughs> or I've never seen so many young communists uh, publicizing and selling Trotsky's writings. So my freshman year, I still tried to argue with them and say, look, guys, uh, lived in Soviet Union, Trotsky, socialism doesn't work, communism doesn't work. It's, uh, it's either comical, like in the late 80s, or horrible, like in the sort of early 50s. Uh, to which their answer was, well, you know, you're biased. Your experiences don't mean anything because that wasn't really socialism. So they just sort of would just brush that away. So like I said, my freshman year, I tried to argue with them in the later, I just gave up. But economics department was pretty decent. Uh, we had a sort of plur plurality of opinion. I would say they did a pretty good job of balancing between uh, sort of between uh, ideological uh, sort of centers. Uh, I think there's nothing wrong about learning different ideologies or engaging different ideologies, but it's wrong when you, it is wrong when you actually stop thinking and and try to say that certain things are, shouldn't be said or certain ideologies are offensive, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Oh boy, this is uh, quite interesting. So, where are your parents? Oh, both of my parents are back home, back in Lithuania. Uh, have been, uh, right now. Uh, yeah, they live there. Uh, my wife is with me here in uh, in the United States in Atlanta, Georgia. We're enjoying southern hosp hospitality and uh, good weather. And uh, I would say, well, Atlanta or Georgia is much different from Connecticut. Uh, it's a, it's a fun place to live. I definitely enjoy the weather here. <laughs> a little warmer than Lithuania. Oh yes, oh absolutely. This is this is like vacation weather for us. So whenever someone complains about Atlanta, I say, well. You know, back at home, we will pay money for this kind of weather. So I'm I'm really happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, your, so your parents back at home, now, did they live through, I guess, the, the Stalinist period? And um, did they have issues back then? Or how did they get through it all? Well, my mother is born in 56, my father in 55. So they were kids when Stalin died. So we didn't experience any of that. Uh, but uh, sort of... During his life in Soviet Union, you, well, you didn't have to be a member of a communist party. But if you want to achieve something in life or if you want to go into a general position, well, those people would, I mean, people would come and ask why you haven't joined communist party yet. 
and my mom just recently discovered that uh, she was labeled as an anarch anarchist so we, we, while she was a student uh, by the KGB informers, and that pretty much meant that her career options were closed. So uh, one thing that you guys in the United States don't know, but pretty much every every group, every student group, any civic group, any sort of group, we had at least one or two KGB informers infiltrated into them. And some of those, some of the time, the, those KGB informers wouldn't even know about each other. And the point was, was totalitarian control of society to sort of to weed out the people who do not uh, agree with socialism, uh, to intervene very early in their lives to make sure they do not uh, sort of achieve high places in, in society. So the one thing, I mean, if you're complaining about Big Brother right now, well, Soviet Union, that's a birthplace of Big Brother. So everyone was sort of telling on everyone. Sometimes you would have this, uh, even sort of situations where, uh, remember the, the story I told about the raffle or waiting in line for to buy a TV. Uh, some people would report other people for anti-communist activities so just they could knock them out of the line and they would get it faster. So in that sense, uh, life was horrible. Wow, that's pretty scary. So um, what, what, uh -huh. I was going to say, so did they think this was a good price to pay for all those luxurious free medical benefits you were getting? <laughs> no, and there were no luxurious free medical benefits. <laughs> and there aren't today. Uh, so whenever Americans talk about European health system, they kind of have a skewed view. They imagine that everything is free and no one has to pay anything. That's not the case. If you don't have insurance, you have to pay or you don't get medical benefits. Uh, sure, there are some things like uh, first aid, uh, which of course sometimes are provided free of charge. But uh, in many of the European countries, you have to work or you have to have a sort of, or you have to buy insurance, or sometimes that insurance is just sort of calculated off your paycheck, sort of in terms of withheld health insurance. Uh, the healthcare isn't free. To, to sort of to be very, very precise about that. Nor wasn't really that very well available in the Soviet Union. Sure, we had health insurance, but then again, if you look at the wages that people were making, they were very low. They were very low compared to obviously Western standards, but even if you look at uh, general living standards, so imagine your sort of average monthly wage was uh, 150 rubles. Well, if you went to a store and if you're lucky enough to find goods in it, um, sort of a fork would cost you about a ruble or even two rubles. And that's just one fork. And the reason why I know that, all the prices in Soviet Union were stamped onto products. So if you have a product such as a fork, a knife, a cup, a shirt or anything, it would cost exactly the same price all across the Soviet Union. And the price was stamped in such a way that you couldn't remove it. In fact, when you go to old people's homes, uh, like your grandparents' house uh, back home, some of them still have those old forks, old knives that still bear the Soviet price stamped into it. Sounds like a good place to go get some collectible items, huh? Yes, ab absolutely. So, in fact, you know, then when they were making Chernobyl, the, the series, that, in fact, was shot in Lithuania. Uh, so... I think they saved a lot of money on props, cars, and things like that because they just went to old people's homes and just gathered it all. And there was a funny story. 
So Chernobyl series was shot in Vilnius, capital in Lithuania, in one of the districts. So in the beginning, people are saying, well, great, you know, those foreigners are shooting a, a TV or a movie here. But then some of, some of them said, wait, so our district looks so bad that we remind of Chernobyl. So <laughs> some of them were upset. <laughs> so speaking of Chernobyl, speaking of, um, uh, uh, I just uh, saying, so um, in, I noticed in the, the um, FEE article um, where I first uh, got in contact with you, you were talking about how uh, when you were young, you guys were out picnicking in an area exposed to Chernobyl radiation and nobody told you. Um, yeah, there's the whole, there was actually, actually, that's a true story. So May the 1st is May Day. So sort of you have to go to this uh, May Day parade and uh, it's a kind of a state orchestra. Thing. But like I said, my parents were bad communists. So we were just, my mother took me sunbathing near the local lake. And uh, that was, uh, that was uh, May the 1st. Uh, Chernobyl exploded on uh, April 26th. And in fact, all the westward winds uh, were blowing stuff uh, stuff across the region. So I don't know if I got any exposure. I hope not. But the fact was that you had this kind of a situation. You had a, nu a largest nuclear accident ever, and you have a government that is sort of denying that, just like in actually like in the movie or in the TV series. So yes, like we joke around, we, we sunbathed in a radioactive glow. <laughs> But I thought uh, the socialist system was supposed to ensure perfect uh, environmental quality in the name of the people. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Don't get me started on that. I mean, if you look at the worst ecological disasters that have ever happened in the world, that's all in a Soviet camp. So Chernobyl is one. Uh, there's another thing. It's, uh, you, pro you guys probably don't know it, but there's, there was this thing called the Aral Sea, which was a well, inland sea. Uh, in the sort of Asia Minor, uh, not even Asia Minor, but basically put it in the, one of those uh, one of those Asian regions uh, of Soviet Union. And in fact, Soviet Soviets used so much water that the entire sea pretty much was gone in like 30 years. So when you see the pictures of uh, ships stranded in the desert, well, the, re the only reason why there is a desert there is because uh, of, of the ecological impact that Soviets. Uh, the amount of water that Soviets took for uh, for agriculture was so large that, in fact, the entire sea uh, pretty much was gone. And we could go hours and hours about the largest ecological disasters, but in fact, most of them were in the Soviet Union and, and other parts of, uh, of the Soviet world. So if you would think that Soviet Union would have a good environmental record, that's absolutely false. Yeah, yeah, so no, no, no or very lax environmental protection uh, compared to, to the Western world. So back to uh, what you were talking about before when you said that you know, in the 80s and 90s, it was basically the whole idea of communism was a joke. But if enough people thought that, why couldn't they do anything about it? Is it, is it that they... Once they get in power, they get so entrenched that even if the majority doesn't want it, they can't do anything about it. No, no, no. I think I think it's more sinister than that. Well, first of all, yes, many people are skeptical. Many people are sort of making jokes in private about the Soviet system, but all of them are afraid to go public because mm -hmm. I mean, 
I mean, there are people right now in in United States that are afraid to make their views public because they think they're going to be ridiculed or laughed at on Twitter. So now imagine being afraid to speak your mind because you might be deported or arrested or incarcerated. So I think uh, if people, I think people these days would definitely understand. I mean, if you if you hold your silence simply because you're afraid to be ridiculed, imagine the risk that you run to you and your own family being deported if you say a, if you say a wrong thing. Oh, so yeah. the security apparatus was working. Mm-hmm. So, so like... when, uh, when you were growing up in Lithuania, did you know anybody who was arrested for politically incorrect statements back then? Well, there, well, there are always these cases. In the same time, Soviets did not try to publicize them because they wouldn't want to know that people were dissenting. Uh, so some of the people who were dissenting were actually put into psychiatric hospitals, meaning uh, if, someone made a no, so if someone made a splash or you know, was engaged in anti-Soviet activities, uh, Soviets would declare him insane because only an insane person would disagree with communism or socialism. Yeah, we actually and discussed uh, Vladimir Bukovsky a few episodes ago. So yeah, that's a great example of that. I remember sort of my personal uh, personal story. So uh, we used to live in a block of flats that was uh, built of white brick. Uh, next to us was a block of flats made of red brick and mainly Russians lived there because they were like children of military officers from a nearby air base. So at some point, uh, uh, so in the late 80s, those of us who lived in the White House or the, or the brick of the house at a white brick, decide, someone decided it's going to be a great idea to call ourselves the White House and to call the other house the Kremlin because it was made of white brick. <laughs> and I remember someone took a, someone even made these little little ID cards with American flags on it, which we wore because we were from the White House. And uh, I remember, I think we were five or six. I remember how, when our parents found out, they sort of took us home pretty uh, pretty soon and uh, had a whole lecture of don't do this again. They didn't explain why, but they said don't do this again. So there. How old were you at that time? I think it was five, five or six. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> so that was like 87, 86, 87. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I sort of, another sort of childhood memory I remember. So in maybe in 85, 86, then we would play, uh, uh, we would have a snowball fight. It would be either cowboys versus Indians or uh, sort of Soviets against Nazis. And I remember back in then. In 1989, in 90, then the whole sort of Lithuanian national uh, reawakening began. These fights turned from uh, cowboys and Indians to Lithuanians and Russians. And those got way more intense. Very interesting. I, I can't even imagine what people felt when, when the Soviet the Soviets let go of Lithuania and the other countries around there. Were you there at the time? Yes, yes, I was there. Obviously, I was a kid, so my level of understanding was limited and childish. I remember in the uh, beginning of 91, uh, 
there was some disturbances. There was a pretty much an attempted uh, Soviet military coup. But anyway, so our teacher comes into the classroom and says, kids, you know, uh, things are not looking good. There are some soldiers in the streets. Why don't you all go home? You know, let's uh, cancel, cancel school for the day. So, of course, we left school, but we didn't go home. We went to the arcade and <laughs> spent the whole day there. <laughs> uh, yeah, people, that was a very historic moment. Uh, uh, many people did not expect that. I think many people even in the West did not expect that. I think even many people in Lithuania did not expect that. But that's when history is made and people do brave things. And sometimes they succeed in those brave things. And Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia... I think they were definitely, definitely very brave in the sort of unilateral declaration of independence, which pretty much said, you know what, we are exiting Soviet Union. And some countries tried that before. Czechoslovakia tried that in 1968. Hungary tried that in 1956. It was always, uh, the Soviet response was always tanks in the streets and uh, more occupation. So what Lithuania did in, in Latvian Estonia, what we did in the 90s, that was, well, brave, I think, yes. Yes, I actually remember that too. Uh, those are interesting times. So, what do you, do you have kids now? Not yet, but working on it. Hmm. So, I'm wondering if if they're gonna do the same thing with some of the other kids from people that come from communist uh, societies. They tend to, after one generation, they tend to start going back to the same same ideas. Yeah, that is an interesting phenomenon. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so so uh, I, I well, think that's I, a good general question. Like, what can people do to inoculate their kids against this sort of um, <laughs> prevalent uh, socialism they hear about in society today? Well, I think one thing we, we need to recognize is that Soviet Union might be dead, but socialism isn't. At the same time, it's socialism. It's not just Soviet Union. Uh, these ideas of socialist ideas were uh, around all around us even before the term was coined. I mean, it's it, it's not that Marx invented socialism. Well, Marx wrote a book, but many of these ideas that a collective or someone else should interfere in your life and tell you how to live your life, uh, for how much to sell the the product or fruit of your labor, that's been around for ages. And I think this whole sort of story of a liberal democracy we have right now, it's actually individuals escaping the control of the group, individuals escaping the control of the collective. So it's, uh, it's some people I think wrongfully think that we have to return to the good old times of uh, individual freedom and the free market. I would say if you really look in the sort of deep history, a couple of thousand years, this whole story of human civilization is actually humans escaping the state control or the control of the group. So I think we have to recognize that some of these socialist ideas are actually universal. And you don't have you don't have to have read Marx to be seduced by some of these ideas. And probably there is not, nothing better than just talking to kids or your friends or other adults about these ideas. And rather than just labeling them socialist and expecting them to see the errors of their ways, I should. Go, I think if you can go into deep discussions. Well, why is more state, or is, why is more government in your life not a not a uh, not a good thing? I think it is only through education and sort of deep understanding and understanding why some people are seduced by these ideas uh, is that we stand a chance. 
That's a great point. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that ties in with, to explain it. Yeah, with, with our motivations for this podcast, of course, um, as well. Um, you know, I, I think telling these individual stories, like you've been doing, is really important for people to understand that these ideas have real consequences for real people. Right? They're not just abstractions you can shout from the clouds. And um, mm -hmm. I think absolutely. So as we're tying things up, you know, we're running out of time. Maybe before we go, um, uh, Z, maybe you could talk a little bit about the foundation that you're currently involved with and what you're doing to, to fight uh, socialism. Well, we at Foundation for Economic Education, uh, well, we definitely think that more freedom is a, is a good thing. Uh, no, no surprise there. Uh, but what we're doing right now, we are explaining the principles of free society. We are explaining... Uh, how the world works to the, to the new generation. Uh, so we are not engaged in, in this ideological warfare, really not uh, sort of for or against one of the existing parties or, or, or candidates, but what we aim to do and what we actually do is to explain to people how the world works and which alternatives are better. And I, I'm, I, am, I deeply think, I deeply believe that our alternative of personal freedom, personal responsibility, is a definitely a better alternative than state control or state responsibility or government control and government responsibility. So what we do every day, we'll, we tell these stories in the language that we think the young generation understands. And many, I've met many young people who say, well, I don't really care about Soviet Union or I really don't care about Cuba. We're going to build a better socialism. I think the best thing we can do is sit down with them and ask them, well, what do you want to do? What kind of society do we want to create? Uh, and that's like the only way of getting through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think if you ask the question, it forces them to think about it and to come up with answers. And they sometimes probably can come to the conclusion that, hey, wait a minute. Uh, sure. I wasn't. Th I didn't think about this uh, very well. Mm-hmm. So thinking, I think, is a great antidote, antidote to any extreme ideology. And at the same time, I think we who, who believe in liberty or who love liberty should also do a better job in actually giving better answers. It's not enough just to label anyone socialist or to say, well, this is socialist, end of discussion. In fact, I mean, if, we are, if we truly know why socialism is bad, uh, we can definitely, we should be able to make arguments uh, that are better than just labels. So you know, if we don't, if someone doesn't like, or if we don't like a single-payer healthcare insurance, we should make a very eloquent argument why this uh, system, or why this proposal uh, is not perfect, what problems it has, uh, what, uh, what solutions it does not bring, and uh, why it's not a panacea. So I think we should all be, well, I don't know, more civil, uh, more friendly and willing to engage ideas uh, rather than just dismiss them. We hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we did. You can read more from Zilvinas and his colleagues at the Foundation for Economic Education's webpage, fee.org. By the way, this link, as well as links to source materials for all our episodes, can always be found with our show notes at storiesofcommunism.com. We'd also like to thank listener Uncommonly Creative Nickname, who posted a nice review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider posting a rating or review as well. 
You can follow the link to our Apple podcast page from storiesofcommunism.com if you'd like to do so. And this has been your Story of Communism for today.